Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. I don't have to tell you that roughly two-thirds of Americans are overweight, and a full one-third of us qualify as obese. Moreover, as globalization has made the planet wealthier, as poor countries have moved up the income scale and people have shifted from subsisting on traditional foods to overeating on Western diets, obesity has quietly become a pandemic all over the world. But what to do? I'd venture that very few of us haven't forced ourselves to endure any number of trendy diets, only to gain all that weight back and maybe even more. I know I've done it countless times, and so has my guest today, but along with a doctor from the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at Harvard Med School, she's co-authored an incredibly helpful new book that combines cutting-edge science with emotional experience that belies the usual diet book hype and offers an abundance of proven facts about losing weight and keeping it off. Today we're talking to Yuna Yata. Uh, along with Dr. Edward M. Phillips. She's the co-author of Food, We Need to Talk, the science-based, humor-laced last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. Yuna Jada, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Ira, and what an amazing intro. So, although there are many thousands of books about dieting you you didn't come to this topic because it was popular both you and your co-author through experiences with his daughter had very real emotional issues with food and eating disorders so could you take a minute just to talk about your own issues growing up yeah so if anything first of all i would love to write a book about something that nobody else is writing about because it would make my life a lot easier because there'd be no competition <laughs> uh but instead i had to choose something that you know everybody and their mother is writing a book about but um when i was growing up i was never overweight but i always wanted to be around 10 pounds lighter or so i grew up with two very skinny sisters and i remember my mom when i was like 13 or 14 you know would always say to my middle sister who was very tall you could be a model. And then she would say to me, you could be her agent. And I'd be like, no, that is not what I want to do. Anyways, so I always wanted to be as skinny as my sisters, basically, even though I was never overweight. So when I was in high school, this was very kind of moderate dieting behavior. So maybe, you know, when we would go to birthday parties and all the other kids would have two or three slices of pizza, I would say, oh, I can only have one. Or if we'd have cake, I would just say, oh, no, it's okay. I'm not hungry or whatever. But when I got to college, because my parents weren't there anymore, I felt like I could take weight loss much more seriously. So that's when I started to really restrict calories a lot more than I did in high school. So in college, I started off maybe eating 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day and also running on the treadmill every day for about you know 40 minutes, an hour to try to burn as many calories as possible. And you would think if you're eating that little and you're exercising that much that you know I came out of college, the thinnest I'd ever been, and oh my God, so awesome, I saw my abs. In fact, I actually gained weight every single year in college. I would reach a new heaviest weight because I was able to maintain my diet for, you know, a couple of weeks at the beginning of the year, and then I would start binge eating. And then as time went on, it would be, I could maintain my diet for less and less time. So it'd be like four days on my diet, three days binging, five days on my diet, two days binging. And this cycle would cause weight gain in the long term. And so my dieting got more and more restrictive, more and more severe 
to kind of try to count back the weight gains and the binges. And of course, that made the binges worse and worse. So we see this a lot with um, eating disorders like bulimia, where part of the purging and restricting process also initiates the binging process. It's kind of a positive feedback loop. So that's kind of what happened the first three years of college. And up until this point, you know, all my eating, all my exercise had all been to lose weight. It was never a health thing. It was always a weight loss thing. And senior year of college, I discovered lifting weights um, because I saw a girl doing it. And I said, wow, this girl looks really good. I like the way she looks. I want to look like her. Let me try it. So I went to the gym and I basically like got addicted to the gym. I was so, so excited. And at first I got really scared because my muscles started to get bigger. And that's always been the opposite of what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be smaller. But it was so empowering to me to actually see myself getting stronger and to see myself progressing week to week that it was the first time in my life where I thought, hmm, if I'm working out, I need to be eating enough protein. So the first thing I started to actually prioritize was, okay, let me have enough protein. And then I started to read more and more about lifting and nutrition. And I said, wow, I really actually, I need to be eating enough food, period, not just protein. And so it completely shifted my mindset from this state of like, I need to deprive myself to get as small as possible to, I need to eat enough to fuel my body. And it shifted the lens from aesthetics to performance. And that's really what helped me kind of exit my eating disorder and really sparked my interest in the evidence-based nutrition, exercise, and health spheres. So we all know how many diets there are out there. And it's very frustrating because when you read the supposed science about them, even if eating nothing but steak and butter seems counterintuitive. They, they all kind of make sense. But your book tells us, number one, they're all very similar. And number two, they all fail. So I'd like you to unpack that for us. First, yeah. why do you write that every diet is the same? Yeah. So when I was doing diets, I thought that there was some magical compound or combination of compounds that if you ate certain foods would cause weight loss. I really didn't have a fundamental understanding of how weight loss worked. So, you know, when the master cleanse came out and it was like lemon juice, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper, I was like, wow, like something in the cayenne pepper interacts with this lemon juice and it unlocks the fat cells and they release the fat and whatever. And if you look at, you know, how the body actually works, it turns out it really is a calorie equation. If you are burning more calories than you are eating, you are going to lose weight no matter where those calories are coming from. So every diet, whether it's keto, vegan, carnivore, um, Whole30, a Twinkie diet is going to cause weight loss as long as the calories you are intaking are less than the calories you are burning. And the way that these diets market that is very different because who wants to hear like, hey, yeah, just like eat less. I don't know. I'm not really interested. Right. But if I say, hey, if you just eat steak, you can lose 20 pounds. Everybody's like, whoa, I love steak. That's awesome. Let me just eat steak. And guess what? If you're just eating steak, you're not eating the soda, the sweetened coffees, the bread, the pastas, blah, blah, blah. When you cut all that stuff out, you are going to be in a calorie deficit because you're restricting your food group so much. So all diets impose some sort of rule structure, whether it's don't eat processed food, don't eat after 7 p.m., only eat this type of food, whatever it's saying to you, it is somehow causing you to eat less, even if it's not advertised that way. So when we look at, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, so why do we have, the book puts a lot of time into the fact that we have a kind of biological 
drive to gain weight, regain the weight after we've lost it? Why? What's going on? Yeah. So your body is not out to get you. Like I always felt like my body just <laughs> hates me. My metabolism is so slow. Oh, my body doesn't want me to fit into these dresses. No, your body is only ever trying to maintain homeostasis. And homeostasis, uh, very simply put, is balance, right? So imagine your body has an internal weight thermostat. It's not an exact number, but it's a range, you know, a 10-pound range, let's say. And your body's job is to keep you within that range. And as humans evolved, the pressures in our environment have always been such that food is scarce, we are trying to find food for survival. And so the biological mechanisms that your body has to help you regain weight if you've lost it are very robust. There's mechanism after mechanism that helps you to gain weight back if you've lost it too much because your body does not want you to die, right? It doesn't want you to lose weight infinitely. There are also mechanisms that stop you from gaining weight infinitely. They are much less robust because that hasn't really been a problem for thousands of years the way losing too much weight or not finding enough food has. So when you lose weight, the body will increase appetite, for example. It will decrease your motivation to move, for example. It will become more conservative with the calories it uses. And all of these things place pressures to regain the weight. Um, that's also why we see that a lot of people have a lot of trouble maintaining a body weight in the normal range on the BMI in today's environment because a lot of the aspects of our environment today are obesogenic. So they actually push your body's thermostat up, for example, by having a lot of very calorie dense, very tasty foods around. Those foods don't really provide the same appetite cues as whole foods do. And so you're much more likely to overeat them. And so everybody's thermostat kind of gets pushed up. If you're just so joining us, is, yeah, let me yeah. just tell people who we are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. And today we're talking about losing weight, keeping it off, getting healthy, and learning to accept our bodies. My guest is Yuna Jata. She's the co-author, along with Dr. Edward M. Phillips, of Food We Need to Talk. So let me let me just jump in here and ask you, we all know that language helps to shape the way we think and behave. And in your book, you make a distinction between the word diet and a diet. And it's a big distinction that I'd never really thought about before. It, it can also determine success or failure. So talk about the distinction between diet and a diet. Yeah, I think we all have this kind of magical thinking around weight loss, especially if you've been trying to do it for a while that like, I can suffer through this diet or a diet for the next three months. And then when I reach this weight, I'm going to be so happy and I'm going to go back to what I was doing before and everything will be happy, you know? And so this idea that it's a diet is by nature, by definition, you are saying that this is a temporary thing you're going to do. The problem with that is as soon as you go back to doing what you were doing before, you are going to go back to whatever weight you were before, if not a higher weight. And that is because as you lose weight, you are slowing down your metabolism just by nature of becoming a smaller person. A smaller person burns less calories than a larger person, at least at the population level, right? There's always going to be outliers. But that's often why men have a, quote, higher metabolism than women. It's because they are larger people and they have more muscle mass often, so they burn a lot more calories. If you lose weight on a diet, to maintain that weight, you need to eat at that same calorie level 
for the rest of your life. Hmm. If you start eating more like you were before, you are going to go back to your previous weight. And oftentimes people will find they will overshoot their previous weight. And that's for various biological reasons that we can also talk about. But the point is any dietary change you make, make it a change that you are willing to do forever, which is really, really hard. So maybe if you are drinking a sweetened coffee every morning, saying, I'm going to cut out these sweetened coffees forever might be really difficult right now because it's part of your daily routine. But saying, okay, I'm going to have black coffee every other day. And once that becomes normal to you, okay, maybe now I can do five days a week black coffee. And eventually maybe you will get to seven days a week black coffee. But making drastic changes that seem unsustainable to you now are not going to be a change that you are able to sustain for a lifetime. We all know how bad ultra-processed food is for our health and, and, of course, how hard it is to stop eating it. But in the book, you break down why. You say junk food makes our brains hyposensitive to pleasure. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so when we looked at studies um, conducted, I believe it was at Mount Sinai, on rats, um, basically they would give them their regular rat food chow And, you know, they respond normally. They eat the normal amount they need to eat to maintain their body weight and everything is fine. Then if you give them hyper palatable foods, that's ultra processed foods. So things like whatever, Twinkies, brownies, cupcakes, muffins, you name it, cereal. Uh, The rats loved it. They would eat way more food than they needed. They would gain weight as you would expect. And then when you would take it away and give them rat chow again, they would rather not eat and starve than eat their regular food because their brains had become so sensitized to this hyper palatable food. So if you are used to eating a lot of ultra processed food, which the majority of us are because 60% of the average American's diet is ultra processed food, whole foods just don't taste as good to you because your brain is so used to having all of these delicious things all in one food, sugar, fat, and salt all combined into one food. That is a combination that you do not ever find naturally occurring in the world. But in ultra processed food, it's basically ubiquitous. And so your brain does not get the same release of dopamine when you have a perfectly ripe peach if you are used to eating peach rings all the time, if that makes sense. The good news is if you cut out ultra processed food and resensitize yourself to actual whole foods, you can reverse that. But it does take weeks. Whereas for example, resensitizing the brain after cocaine addiction, according to this rat study, took 48 hours. Resensitizing to food took them two weeks. I don't know what peach rings are, but I'm going to leave that go for now. <laughs> peach rings are like a gummy, they're like a gummy, like a sour patch thing, but they taste like peach. Oh, okay. So, so let's get into exercise, which is so important. The book calls it the magic pill. And, and I think we've all heard the guidelines on average minimum of 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical exercise per week. Can you talk about what you consider to be moderate intensity physical exercise? Is it walking, swimming, bike riding, or for that matter, actual work, which my wife would like me to do, like gardening or building a shed? And I I always say, well, I need to do my moderate intensity physical exercise, and gardening is not that. So what is moderate physical exercise? Yeah. So the heart rate zones for moderate physical exercise are going to 
depend on your age, but a pretty good rule of thumb is if you're not quite able to hold a conversation without taking breaths like this in between what you're saying. So that's moderate intensity. If you can't hold a conversation at all and you can't even talk, that's high intensity. And if you're able to basically keep the conversation, that's going to be low intensity. So that'd be more something like a walk. Moderate intensity for a lot of people is going to be like a light jog, a bike ride, stuff like that. Um, But I think testing it by how well you can talk is a pretty easy way. So you don't have to get like a heart rate monitor and then calculate with your age and your heart rate max and blah, blah, blah. Well, I can talk when I do anything, so that's not going to work for me. So I may have to get a heart rate monitor. So, well, there you go, yeah. <laughs> so you tell us there's two forms of exercise, really, to consider. There's cardio versus strength training, and, and that would um, kind of be Peloton versus people who go to the gym. And, and I'd like you to talk about the benefits of each. Yeah, so both of them are really important, and I think um, – when we describe as there's two, a lot of times we'll say, but which one is better? And the answer is there's no one better. They're both good. <laughs> there's no reason you only have to do one, right? So endurance training or cardio is doing lower intensity things for longer. So running is lower intensity than, for example, doing squats, but you can do it for a much longer time, right? Like you can do a 10 minute, 20 minute, 30 minute hour. People do ultra marathon runs. When you do a heavy squat, you're not doing that for 10 minutes. You're doing five reps and then resting for three, right? So strength training is going to be higher intensity and lower duration a lot of the time. Both of these things are training different aspects of your body. So one is training your cardiovascular system and one is training more your muscular strength. If you look in reality, both are training both to different degrees, but in a simplified view, Endurance training is training more your cardiovascular system and strength training is training your muscles. You need both of these things to be healthy, right? Like we need to be strong and we also need to have a healthy heart. And if you look at risk reduction for all cause mortality, which is cause from any, um, any, any sort of cause for death, right? If you look at things like smoking or diabetes, they increase your risk of dying by about 1.5 or 1.4 times. So it's about 50% increase in dying at any one given year if you have diabetes or 50% if you have smoking, right? Just by exercising, you can decrease your risk of all-cause mortality by 200%, by 300% for your muscle mass. So it's exercising is better for you than anything else is bad for you. That is how important it is to exercise. And I feel like it's so under talked about, but like, it's never too late to start no matter what your health is at. Like, even if you exercise your whole life and you always have diabetes and high blood pressure, you are still vastly improving your health outcomes just by engaging in exercise, no matter what your weight, no matter what your disease is, no matter what your health status. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're discussing some proven new insights in diet, exercise, weight loss, and staying healthy. My guest is Yuna Jata. She's the co-author, along with Dr. Edward M. Phillips, of Food We Need to Talk. There was something, though, about resistance training which really caught my eye, and that's, I think, why I error on the side of doing more weight stuff than cardio stuff. And that's because you tell us that weight stuff enables you to keep burning calories 
all day long, whereas cardio, you only burn them while you're doing the cardio. Is that true? Yeah. So I, like you, I <laughs> are on the side of resistance training. If I have to do one or the other, I often, I will just do resistance training. And I would say it's not really controversial that if you just had to choose one, resistance training is probably going to be better in the long term. And part of the reason is what you've talked about. So when we do cardiovascular exercise, so for example, running, you're going to burn a set number of calories within that run. And that's all the calories you burn. When you do resistance training, you're probably going to burn less calories during a lift than you would be during a run or during a bike. But you are during that lift damaging your muscle fibers. And during the rest of the day, your body is repairing those muscle fibers so that you can get stronger and grow. And that repair process is very metabolically taxing. So not only do you increase your metabolism by increasing your muscle mass, but once you've reached a certain plateau, let's say, you know, five years down the line of lifting, you're not really probably going to increase your muscle mass that much each year because you've probably reached a genetic potential for muscle mass. But you are still continually tearing down muscle fibers, rebuilding them, tearing them down, rebuilding them. And so the entire rest of the day, while you're sleeping, while you're sitting, your body's metabolism is increased. The caloric need of your body is increased, which means that we are better able to cope in this world where calories are quite abundant. So like you, I do really err on the side of resistance training just because I would prefer to have a higher metabolism if possible. I kind of force myself on the rowing machine one or two days a week. Just, so just do I. Just because, I mean, that's my preferred cardio uh, uh, me too and i think it's because it still kind of makes you feel strong when you're doing the rowing machine this yeah. is my theory because i was like the rowing machine i still kind of feel powerful whereas running i just kind of feel like i'm just flopping around <laughs> but yeah i, I kind of do a five minutes of beginning five minutes of end. i'm like okay i did my cardio <laughs> for the day so, so let's talk about let's talk about um how you look after weight training you personally found that strength training works best for you. But you tell us that some women are afraid of looking too bulky for a while. And as I say, when I started lifting, the same thing happened to me. So how do you keep from getting progressively stronger without looking like the Hulk? Or is it that ultimately, you just have <laughs> to embrace the healthy body that you live in? Yeah, so this is kind of, you know, a complicated topic. It's not for women, especially, I think you don't have to be too, too worried about becoming, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight. Um, it's pretty hard to build muscle. People who look like female bodybuilders have to work extremely hard at it. Um, I think the last study I saw was like a third of them are on exogenous hormones of some sort, and they are optimizing every single part of their training. Like they are in the gym for hours a day. They're sleeping perfectly. They're eating perfectly. They're eating enough protein. They're supplementing. And with all of that, they are still the top, you know, 1% of genetic potential, right? So you don't have to be worried about looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger by lifting, but it is true that your muscles are going to grow if you lift weights. I think uh, the look a lot of us are going for when we say toned is we want to have a more shapely body. So we want some of that muscle tone, but we also want to have less fat. So what a lot of people probably don't like in their look is if you build a lot of muscle and you also have a lot of fat on top of it, it will make you look a lot larger. And I think that's kind of the thing that people are talking about, but it's not the muscle in my opinion, that's like 
the real problem because the muscle is such a functional tissue for you. It's a glucose sponge. So it helps you to not have glucose in your bloodstream. And muscle mass is one of the things that is most correlated with how long you live. So to me, I'm like, there's no way that I want to get rid of the muscle mass, especially if it's functional and I'm able to do things with it. And it's more um, a question of trying to get the rest of your nutrition in check to help maybe reduce some of that fat mass. For me personally, I have reached a point where I don't think there's much I can improve in my nutrition without feeling very restricted or venturing into like disordered eating, eating disordered territories. So, I mean, I have just tried to learn to accept my body the way it is, because as long as my body can do what I want it to do, I want to love it the way it is. And I think when I was making changes out of hating my body and wanting to change the way it looked, it was very detrimental to me and it led to a lot of mental health issues and it really made the rest of my life miserable. But when I've made health changes because I love my body, it has always led to actually making changes I could sustain that make me happier. Uh, The other thing I will say, if there's really something that you just really hate, you can stop working that thing out for you know a period of weeks like if you've seen somebody who puts a cast on their arm and they take their cast off six weeks later their forearm is like half the size of their other arm right so it's pretty easy to lose muscle if you just stop using it um it is a little harder in real life because you know we do use our arms all day but if you really just hated 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 your arm muscles you could just stop training upper body for a few weeks and it would probably decrease the size and then you could start lifting less frequently in that body region if you really want to do that. Mm-hmm. I hate my traps. I really don't like the way they look, but I can tell you right now like I wouldn't be able to do handstands without good traps, so I have never I've never <laughs> stopped training them because I need them for all the things I do. So do you do you um there I hear various things. So it's it's how you look and how you feel and how much lean muscle you have. It's not really how much you weigh. But then in the book, you said that people who actually weigh themselves on a scale do better. So, so yeah. what it what is it? And is the method of if your pants get too tight is that not a good method to see if you're gaining too much weight? Yeah. So what you're referring to is when we looked at the National Weight Control Registry, which is this registry of people that have lost a significant amount of weight and kept it off in the long term. They did studies on them to see what are these people doing differently than the rest of us that they're able to keep off the weight. And one of the behaviors that was common was self-monitoring. So in the study, they did say this was weighing yourself. So a lot of people that were able to keep the weight off were weighing themselves frequently to check up on their weight. I will say I take this with a grain of salt because I think there are a segment of the population where weighing themselves is very mentally detrimental. Like I know for me, when I weighed myself, it would often lead to me eating worse that day because I would be so upset about the number I saw on the scale. So if you are the type of person where having some sort of accountability with the scale helps to keep yourself in check, then I think, you know, you can weigh yourself, you can measure your waist, you can see how your clothes are fitting and kind of keep tabs on it. But if you're the type of person where you notice that it is making your mental health worse, then I think there's there's no need to do that. That was just one study that showed this segment of the population was doing that more, right? When we talk about weight and health in the broader sense, um, there is a big difference between how people perceive weight and health and I think the reality of it. So 
if you are a heavier weight, like my weight will always be higher than probably most other women of my height and age, because I've spent a lot of time yo-yo dieting. And now my weight has just, every time I yo-yo dieted, my set point has increased pretty much. Um, If you start to adopt health behaviors like better nutrition and exercise and whatever, and your weight does not change at all, a lot of people would look at that and say, oh, I failed. I, I haven't lost any weight. Your health prognosis is so much better just because you're eating better and exercising than if you just lost five pounds or whatever. So we know losing as little as 5% of your body weight does lead to better biomarkers. But we also know losing no body weight and just improving your health behaviors also leads to increased health. And if you're losing weight in an unhealthy way, I don't think it's worth it in the long run because you're not actually, the the reason that good health behaviors lead to weight loss is because they are already making your body healthier, right? So I personally, just because of my history and very restrictive dieting, I think for me, the best approach is I will do these health behaviors because they are better for me long-term. And if it leads to weight loss, great. And if it doesn't, great, because either way, I'm becoming healthier. Okay, I think we're going to have to leave it right there time-wise. I want to thank you very much. The book was very, very helpful to me, and I've read all of them. And uh, <laughs> this one, this one, I think, is going to set me on the right course. My guest today has been Yuna Jata. I want to thank Matthew Dunn for his tech work on the show. Food We Need to Talk has just been released by St. Martin's Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on getting healthy and accepting your body one interview at a time. Bye for now. Thank you.